September 11th will forever be remembered in this world, and particularly here in the United States of America. It is a date that we just can't forget. It's a date similar to Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This thing, the date that stands out in our mind of a great event. Since that date, these events have caused and catapulted our country into a state of patriotism, compassion, yet anxiety and fear. For example, the city of New York City has changed as we know it. Not only has that changed, um, air travel has changed. Now there's, there's all these new um, waiting lines and there's, there's uh, the National Guards at the airport. Also, this, this past weekend I had a chance to go to the Lakers game and now when you go into the, lake, the, the Staples Center, there's metal detectors. And these are just some things that have changed since that one day. But I have a question. Well, what is going on? What can we expect and what can we gather from all these changes? What can we really understand from this horrific event? I remember that day when it happened, I got some phone calls almost right off the bat, and some students were asking me, is this the, the tribulation? Is this the end of days? Is this, gonna, is this the when Jesus is coming back? They were concerned because they had saw an event that they thought was apocalyptic in nature, and they thought then that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. But is Jesus Christ coming back soon? When is He going to come back? When will Jesus Christ set up His kingdom? This is an interesting question. It is a question many of us want to know, and many people have tried to answer throughout the years. For example, when the events of World War I and World War II came out, many people saw those events and thought they were preliminary to the return of Christ because they involved the whole world and they were so intense in nature. After that, there was an author by the name of Hal Lindsey who wrote two books called The Late Great Planet Earth and The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon where in these books, he proposed that Armageddon, this final battle, would occur during that time period, approximately around 1988. And so he thought that that was a time. Another author, by the name of Edgar Wisenant, wrote a book which became a bestseller. And the name of the book was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. Well, the rapture didn't happen in 1988. And so the next year, he wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 89. <laughs> now, obviously, he thought it was going to happen, but as we know, he was wrong. And see, people want to know. We just, we, it's like you know, the, the commercial inquiring minds want to know. We just have to know, when is Jesus Christ coming back? Many people have tried to look at the events and, and try to look at them and say, you know what, because that event happens, I'm going to impose the Bible upon that event, and I'm going to think that it's coming back. I'll tell you right up front, nobody knows when Christ is coming back. One verse that clearly states this is Mark chapter 13, verse 32. And let me read it for you. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heavens, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's what he said. Only the Father knows. Now, although it is foolish to try to guess and try to figure out when Jesus Christ is coming back, that doesn't mean that he isn't coming back. And I want you to turn to Second Peter chapter 3 and verses 10 through 14. And we're going to take a look at today an event that happens when he comes back. And then from that, we are going to take a look at how are we supposed to live presently as believers in this age in getting ready for that return. And my question is, is are you ready for that return? Are you ready for the return of Christ? Follow along with me as I read 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now, from this passage, as I mentioned before, we are going to specifically look at one event that happens in the eternal time frame of the Lord. Then we will look at why we need to live and how we're supposed to live in view of that event. Now, in order to get a better understanding of what is going on, I think it's very important to understand why Peter was writing the book of Second Peter. The purpose of writing Second Peter was to expose, thwart, and defeat the invasion of false teachers into the church. This book, along with the book of Jude, speaks clearly about false teachers. And you have to ask yourself, well, what false teaching were they promoting that caused Peter to write what he did in these verses? Turn back with me to verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to set the context of why exactly Peter responded the way he did in this, in this book. So look with me here in verse 1 of chapter 3. And Peter starts out, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. We'll stop right there. Peter, we know now that there's scoffers in the last days. And at the time, there were scoffers already in the time that Peter was writing. Scoffers, people who were poking fun. Now, what were they poking fun? What were they mocking? And we find out here in verse 4. And this is what they were poking fun at. It says, And saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They were making fun of all the believers who were waiting for Christ to return. They said, Hey, Christ hasn't returned yet. You guys are foolish for waiting that. They were poking fun at them because they were anticipating the return of Christ. Their reasoning was, as it says here in verse 4, that since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They told these people, the believers, that the reason Christ isn't coming back and the reason there isn't going to be a cataclysmic judgment is because there never has been a cataclysmic event before. They said that creation, that since the fathers fell asleep, everything's been the same. Therefore, everything will be the same. Since there's never been a big major event, there never will be a big major event, which is the coming of the Lord. But they were wrong. And Peter shows us here in verse 5. He says, For this... They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. He reminds the believers that, you know what, there has been cataclysmic events before. The earth hasn't always been the same. There was a creation and there also was a flood, two major cataclysmic events. And because there has been these cataclysmic events before, there will be another one coming up. And what is that cataclysmic event? Right here in verse 7, it says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Listen, believers, he's telling them, there is going to be a major cataclysmic event at the end in which the heavens... And the earth are going to be destroyed. After he mentions this, he lets them know why Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet. And this is what we find out here in verses 8 and 9. Peter says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He reminds them that in the Lord's frame of mind, it hasn't been that long. Because to the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. He then goes on to say, the reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet is because God is patient. He's willing, He's not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. He is, because of His love, He is waiting for people to come to repentance. And He's being long-suffering. But one day, He's coming back. And this is what starts our particular passage. Peter addresses the scoffers back in verses 3 and 4 and lets the believers know He is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. For all those people who scoff, guess what? He is coming. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this one event. And the one event right here is this day of the Lord and one aspect of the day of the Lord. Now, before we get going, one question we need to ask is what is the day of the Lord? Now, this is a very interesting term. And there's numerous times it is talked about throughout the Bible. This, this expression, day of the Lord, refers to a time of judgment. Though the Old Testament prophets pictured it as a day of darkness, an unparalleled judgment, when God would vindicate His people, destroy their enemies, and establish His kingdom. It is frequently associated with seismic disturbances, violent weather, and clouds and thick darkness, to name a few. So, this day of the Lord, this expression, day of the Lord, is intensely judgmental. It is pretty intense, to say the least. Now, this term also is used in the New Testament, as we see right here. And this day of the Lord refers to this time of judgment. And the aspect we're going to take a look at today is the aspect of the day of the Lord that occurs after the millennium. The way I understand the Bible speaking about eschatology is that the church, the next event that's going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to come back. There's going to be a rapture, and He's going to take the church up with them. After that rapture, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. Then, after that seven-year tribulation, there will be a thousand-year reign called the millennium, where Jesus Christ will come back to earth and set up His kingdom. And at the end of that millennium, the heavens and earth will be destroyed. And that is where we find what we're going to talk about today. And just to let you know, if you have any more questions about the day of the Lord, Pastor Jack Hughes will love to sit down and talk with you, I'm sure, about that. And go through all the nuances so you can ask him about that. But the day of the Lord, we're going to, when you look at this verse in verse 10, we're going to see three aspects of this event, the day of the Lord. The first thing that we see here, if you look here in verse 10, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come. Now, the reason I point that out is because in the, in the Greek, this word come is at the beginning of the sentence. And it's at the beginning of sentence for emphasis. Peter was reminding the believers, listen, he is coming. And again, that's so important because just previously we read that scoffers were telling these believers, listen, Jesus isn't coming back. There's not going to be some great cataclysmic event. But he reminds them, guess what? It is coming. We have scoffers today. Let me read you one quote about a present-day scoffer. And this is what he says. Paul himself, that he was among those who awaited the imminent return of Christ. Yet, the history of that era clearly shows all was for naught. No Messiah appeared. The New Testament repeatedly says the Messiah was to return in a very short time. Yet, mankind has waited for nearly 2,000 years and nothing has occurred. He goes on to say, By no stretch of the imagination cannot be considered coming quickly. It is indeed unfortunate that millions of people still cling to the forlorn hope that somehow Messiah will arise to extract them from their predicament. How many years? 2,000? 10,000? 100,000? Will it take for them to finally say, we can only conclude that we are victims of a cruel hoax? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a cruel hoax. Jesus Christ is coming back. 
No matter how long it seems we have to wait, it is not a cruel hoax. And Peter emphasizes that right here by the position of the word. He says, the day of the Lord will come. That's encouragement for all of us. It will come. This morning when I read John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 6, what did Jesus say? He said, if I were not coming back, I would have told you so. But Jesus himself said, I am coming back. Another passage which emphasizes this is Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, the disciples all saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and they were looking up to heaven. And as they were standing and looking into heaven, two angels came out, and they say, Why are you looking here? Listen, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him going to heaven. The disciples knew that he was coming back. It is clear in the scriptures that he is coming back. And I point that out because if some people tell you today, and scoffers are out there, don't be discouraged that he hasn't come back yet. But understand, he will come back. And that is very important. And that's great hope that we know he's coming back. Because the reason I say this, if Jesus Christ himself said he's coming back, and Jesus Christ himself cannot lie, then what does that mean? He's coming back. And we have that hope. And that's what Peter addresses here at the very beginning. That's one aspect of this event. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. The next thing that we see here is that he's going to address. He addresses the manner in which the day of the Lord will come. If we look down here in verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief. Now, just to let you know, this word in the Greek for thief is klepto. All right, and we get the word kleptomaniac, person who steals things, and this is where it comes from. So this day will come like a klepto. Now, how does a klepto work? How does a thief work? Well, a thief comes, what does he do? Does he tell you when he's coming? Does he call you on the telephone and say, hey, guess what? At 10 o'clock tonight, I'm coming over to your house and trying to rob you. No, he doesn't do that, does he? No, he comes stealthily. He comes quietly. He, tries, he sneaks in there. That's how he comes, and that's how Peter says, this day will come. Now, let's turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, and verses 42 through 44. And this passage is a good illustration of how he will come, and how this, how this thief will come, which refers to the coming of the day of the Lord. But Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. And this is what Jesus says. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when this event is exactly going to happen. And if you turn back to 2 Peter 3, that's what Peter's emphasizing. He says, first of all, that this event is coming, and but it is coming as a thief. It is coming secretly and quietly, and we do not know when the event's going to happen. Now, the third thing that he says here, that we learn about here in verse 10, is what is actually going to happen. What is actually going to happen on this final event? Look with me here in verse 10. This is what it says. It says, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What does this exactly mean? Well, let's just take this piece by piece. The first thing that Peter says is that the heavens, referring to the skies around the earth, will be will pass away with a, with a great noise. And so if you look outside, you guys go outside today, you look at the skies all around you, sometime in the future, they're going to pass away, they're going to perish, and they're going to perish with a great noise. And this word for great noise can refer to it, it refers to like a, a roaring sound, similar to a sound of, of flames. And so Peter is saying here, there's gonna be, it's, they're going to be just perish, are going to be just utterly annihilated with a great noise. 
And this is what's going to happen at some time in the future. So when you go outside and all that thing, just remember that those things are going to be destroyed. Now the second thing that Peter mentions is going to happen at this event, he says in verse 10 here, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now what are the elements? One author, Wilbur Smith, in his book, This Atomic Age, and the Word of God states this, the elemental particles by which the universe is constructed, and this, it would seem to me in modern language, is expressed by the word atom. It does not make any difference what word we use to express it, so long as we hold to the idea, and the idea that the Greeks gave to this term is certainly the idea of atom in physics. The elements, the, the smallest particles that we know in physics, in chemistry, they're going to melt with fervent heat. And Peter describes it pretty specifically. This word for heat was a medical term referring to someone who had a high fever. And all these particles are just going to be utterly melted with, because of the great heat. They're going to be destroyed. So Peter so, so far says the skies are going to pass away. These elements, atoms are going to be destroyed. And finally here, he says in verse 10, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The earth, which refers to this planet, will be burned up. And the works, the buildings, anything that it says humankind has crafted in art and nature will be burned up. For example, the Getty Museum will be destroyed. Your house will be destroyed. Your car will be destroyed. Staples Center will be destroyed. This building here will be destroyed. Everything is going to be completely destroyed, utterly just wiped away. John talks about it in Revelations 20.11 as the earth and heavens are going to flee from the presence of God. Now that's a very interesting start to a sermon. Now these, these are drastic and major cataclysmic events. And Peter emphasized that this is going to happen. But what's really interesting is the reason he says it. Look here in verse 11. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since they will be destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And that is rather interesting. Now, why would Peter say, go through all these, all these major events and say, because of these major events, you guys got to do this. You know, I've thought about this question a lot. I mean, this, this question has really just puzzled me. And the one thing that really stuck out, the reason Peter did this, was that he was saying, listen, to the believers, don't take stock in this world. You can't take your things with you. You can't take your fishing nets. You can't take any type of thing they had at that time, he can't take that with you. Everything is going to be destroyed. The only thing that remains is what you do eternally. That's the only thing that remains. Peter's saying, listen, the world and everything is going to be destroyed. Don't take stock in it. But what you can do that, you, that does have eternal value is your walk with the Lord. And I want to encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, today... Everything that you own is going to be destroyed. I know it's not really encouraging. That's really encouraging. But one thing you have as a believer is you have a walk with the Lord. And that is the most important thing that matters at all today, presently. Because these are going to major events in the future, the only thing that matters is having an eternal perspective, is serving the Lord wholeheartedly, for starting now and for the rest of eternity. And that's what Peter's emphasis is. He wants us to have that eternal perspective. He doesn't want us to get caught up in the, the now and present. He's telling you, listen, all these things will be destroyed. Now, the question is, what type of person are we supposed to be this time? How can I live eternally? How can I have that eternal perspective? Well, there's four things, there's four characteristics that we see in this text that we are supposed to live right now. We are supposed to be characterized, first of all, by holiness. By holiness. Secondly, 
we're supposed to be characterized by godliness. Third, we're supposed to be characterized by looking and eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. And fourthly, we are supposed to be hastening the coming of the day of God. Does that describe you? Well, let's go, let's, let's dig in here and try to figure out how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act, which is the only way, the ha- only thing that has eternal value. Look with me here in verse 11. This is what Peter says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, you ought to be holy. Holy, the way I define holy is that you need to be characterized as one who separates yourself from evil and from sin. You are trying to separate yourself and set yourself apart from sin. If you guys follow football, college football, you have the Heisman Trophy Award. You know what he does? He goes like this, right? You're, you're basically, you're giving a stiff arm to sin. You're separating yourself away from sin. Because what you want to do is you want to be set apart as God is set apart. That's holiness. And my question is, is are you characterized by holiness? Are you concerned with eternal value so much that you are acting holy right now? This was on Peter's mind. He had a great desire for his people that he was shepherding for them to be holy. If you hold your finger right here, turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. And this is a, one famous text. But this is what Peter was writing to the people, to the people that he was shepherding. He says here in, in chapter 1 and verse 15, But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter wants us to be holy. Holiness is something that's eternal. The world is not, your car is not, but holiness is. You want to serve the Lord forever. And Peter, if you turn back here to 2 Peter 3, he wants us to be holy. My question is, do you have a desire to be holy? Do you wake up in the morning just, oh man, and just just be like, I hate sin. And Lord, help me not to fall into sin. It's your intense desire. Lord, I know that that's what's important. Anything else is not important, but I need to be holy. Do you have that desire? Is that your desire? And Peter says, that's what your desire needs to be with the understanding that nothing else matters. The second characteristic that he goes into is stated here in verse 11. It's at the end. And he says, What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Godliness is when a person is reverently, reveres the Lord, and he seeks to do what is pleasing to God. Is that, does that characterize you? Does it characterize myself? Am I godly? Do I seek to please the Lord in all I do? Do you seek to please the Lord in all you do? Because you know that's the only thing that matters. Or or do you seek to gratify yourself? Do you seek to get the, the best job? Or do you seek to just entertain yourself here on earth? That's not what Peter says we need to do. He says we need to seek to please God with view that this is all that, that these great judgmental events are coming. So, so far we looked at two characteristics, holiness and godliness. Are we set apart from sin and are we seeking to to please God in all that we do? The third one, the third characteristic that we are supposed to do is found in verse 12. And we will spend much time on this one. But Peter says we need to look for and hasten the coming of the day of God. Do you look for the return of Christ? Do you look for, specifically here it says, the coming of the day of God? It's the idea of expectancy. It's not the idea of just sitting at a bus stop and just kind of, you know, hanging out, reading a newspaper, and just, you know, maybe the bus will come. But it's the idea of you're looking, you're just waiting, and you have this eager anticipation that Christ is coming back, that these events are going to happen. It was huge that Peter, he kept challenging the people to do this. Look at verse 13. He again says this word, look. He says in verse 13, 
Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. Peter wanted them to be looking for it. Now, this is a, a, major, a major item for me. There is nine authors in the New Testament. Do you know how many of them all spoke on this idea that Jesus Christ was coming back? And that they all spoke about looking? All nine of them. Now, were they all mistaken? Were they all wrong by challenging us to look? Were they, were they mistaken that they were looking for Christ? Nope. None of them. They weren't duped. They, they knew. My question is this. Since all nine of the authors were all ready for His return and concerned about it, why aren't we? If it was so pressing to them and the early church, why, is it pressing, why isn't it pressing to us? Now, graciously, the, the Lord has allowed me... Um, to grow up in a church and, and the Lord graciously saved me at a young age and, and, I, and I've heard a lot, many sermons over my years but not nearly as prob- many as, as you guys have heard but in my short time that I've heard probably 25 years or so I rarely hear preachers and anybody talk about looking for the return of Christ I've heard people talk about the rapture I've heard people talk about the end times I've heard people talk about the events of Revelation. But I haven't heard many people talk about looking for and eagerly anticipating. And this is what Peter was was saying. Do we eagerly anticipate his return? Do we have that heavenly perspective? Do we wake up every morning and when we get out of bed, we say, Lord, I am so excited for your return. Please come. You're just so excited. You cannot wait. You're eagerly anticipating. It's like a little kid who the night before, he's going to go to the music park for the first time. Or like the night, or maybe a better example would be the night before Christmas. And he, he can't wait, or she can't wait. They're just so excited that, that you know, they're, oh boy, I can't wait. But what am I present going to get, right? And they're eagerly anticipating it. In the same way, do we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ? And even, do we even have a heavenly perspective or an internal perspective? Let's, let's just focus on the Apostle Paul for a little while. Turn the book to the book of Philippians with me. And what was Paul's passion? Paul's passion was eternal. He eagerly wanted to be in heaven. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. A real famous verse, but yet a verse that we often quote, and I, yet I don't think we personalize. And, we don't, and it's almost like we're practical not doing that verse. Although we say we know the verse. And in verse 21 it says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know myself, I, I, have to, I, I don't always have that view. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better to be with God in heaven than it is here to be on earth. Paul had a vision of heaven. He saw heaven. He knew. And for him, it was better to be with Christ in heaven than it was to be here on earth. Now, he knew he needed to be here on earth, but he knew it was better. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 11, and we see the same emphasis that Paul gave. And it's, it's so clear, and I beg of you, all to have the same emphasis, same mindset. In verse 11 of Philippians 3, this is what Paul says. He says, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now what is he talking about? I believe Paul was so consumed about being in heaven that he was actually, he was actually hoping that someday the Lord would take him home to be with him so he could be resurrected from the dead and he could spend time in heaven. Paul had this intense desire for heaven. He had an intense desire that he was looking eagerly for that. Look at the book of First Thessalonians. If you, if, I would encourage you, it's on your own time, in the book of First Thessalonians. Notice how Paul ends each chapter of First Thessalonians. 
The last verse of chapter 1, he says, you want to wait for the Lord who is coming. And in chapter 2, the same idea. In chapter 3, exactly the same idea. In the chapter 4, he says, comfort one another with these things. And right near the end of chapter 5, he talks about it again. Why would Paul spend so much time and effort writing things down about the return of Christ if it didn't mean something to him? But it did. He couldn't wait. I mean, he just couldn't wait. He just wanted to be in heaven. That's, that was his main concern. One person puts a quote like this. And let, me, let me quote it for you. He says, Much of modern Christendom has lost Paul's expectant waiting for the return of Christ, much to its own impoverishment. This expectancy is an essential part of a mature Christian life. One commentator says, That attitude of expectation is the bloom, as it were, of the Christian character. Without it, there is something lacking. Again, do you have that eager anticipation? Another commentator says, The anticipation of Christ's return characterized the Christian church from its very beginning. Are you excited about the future, or are you putting stock into this world? And it's very interesting that we do that, because in 1 John 2.17, the Apostle John tells the believers there, he says, listen, the world and all of its lusts are passing away, but he who does the will of God endures forever. The one who does the will of God will endure forever. He had that eternal perspective. He didn't want people to be caught up in everything in the world. He said, listen, the only thing that lasts is what? He who does the will of God will endure forever. He had that same mindset. I want to encourage you guys, is that your mindset? Are you looking for, are you eagerly anticipating such as a so the person waits for the, the birth of a new child or as a child waits for Christmas. Is that your desire? I encourage you guys, when you walk away to here, I, I would beg of you to have that desire, to have that eternal perspective. Turn back with me if you're in 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Paul goes on after saying, I mean, I'm sorry, Peter goes on, and after saying that you need to be looking for the day of God, he talks about the fourth characteristic, and he says, you need to be hastening the coming of the day of God. He's, so, so far he said we need to be holy, godly, and looking for the coming of God. And now he says we need to be hastening the coming of the Lord. Now, what do I mean by hastening? Well, I believe it, I, I define it like this. A person who is hastening the coming of the day of God is characterized by one who's trying to accelerate the process. He's characterized by one who's trying to urge it on. Before he was just eagerly anticipating it, looking and excited about it, now he's actually trying to accelerate it on or urge it on. Now, what's one way we can do that? Well, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6... The Lord taught the disciples how to pray. And as you guys turn there, I want to I focus on one particular prayer that He told all of us to pray. And this is a very interesting prayer. But look at verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. And this, is, and this is where I'll start when I read. It says this, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second petition that he wanted disciples and all of us to pray for is the coming of his kingdom. Do you guys pray for the return of Christ? Do you guys pray? Do you, ladies and gentlemen, pray for the return of Christ? Is that what you do? Is that what I do? Do you wake, again, we'll use this wake up in the morning, but it's the start of the day. Are you excited so much about the coming kingdom 
that you wake up and throughout the day you pray, please, Lord, come. Please, Lord, come. Please. I'm begging of you. Please, please establish your kingdom here on earth. Are you excited for Jesus to come back to earth and rule and be glorified like he should be glorified? Are you excited for yourself to see your Savior face to face one day so much that you're begging God to come and set up his kingdom? And in that way, I think we can, and that's a sense I think characterizes a person who is trying to accelerate or hasten the coming of the day of God. And that's what we on here can do. We can do that. We can pray for his return. And that's what we're called to do. And is that your hope? Again, I'll just keep going over this, but it is such a joy someday that we can be in heaven. Isn't it? We get to spend an eternity with God, with our Savior, face to face. We can glorify God without these sin bodies, without these sinful bodies. We can sit there and praise Him for eternity. In heaven, what a that is so glorious! You know the song we sang today. Soon and soon and very soon, Jesus is coming again. What a is when you guys sang that song when you when when you all out there were, were praising the Lord with that song. Was that what you really meant? There was a song that we used to sing when I was a kid, um, and I don't, I'm not going to sing it now, okay? But I don't, don't want to, you know. Have you guys put your fingers to your ears or anything? Okay. But the, the word of the song was um, that Jesus Christ is coming back someday, maybe any time or day. Jesus is coming back someday. The Holy Bible told me so. So praise the Lord. Shout hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Jesus is coming again. I don't know if you ever heard that song before, but I remember singing it as a, as a child. But that song was great because it helped us think about the future. Jesus Christ is coming back someday. That's a hope. And is that such a great hope for you that you're doing it? And is what Peter specifically says here in 2 Peter 3.10, that all these events are going to destroy every type of hope that we have here on earth, does that resound so much in your mind that you're saying, well, I'm forsaking the world. I am forsaking the world. I am forsaking trying to invest everything in the world. And I am going to be godly, holy, looking for the day of God. And I'm going to try to hasten that coming day. Does that characterize you? Turn back with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll take a look at specifically what Peter says after this. After he explains the event, after he explains how we're supposed to live, he goes on and explains something a little more. And I think this is very, very, very important for us to understand. At the Follow along with me as I read verse 12 again. And this is what Peter says. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So he goes back and, and, re, and emphasizes that it's going to be destroyed. Then in verse 13 he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you looking for a new heavens and a new earth in where righteousness dwells? Now, just to let you know, I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Because right here in verse 13, Peter says, because of the promise, there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. Well, what promise is he referring to? So turn back with me to Isaiah 65 and verse 17. And we get to see a promise that indeed there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And this is great news. This is unbelievable news. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. You can bank on that. And that is why, that is a promise that Peter remembered and explained to the people that he was writing to, that there is a promise. Are you looking for that promise? Are you looking for the new heavens and new earth? And you know what else is exciting? Is you know how the new heavens and the new earth are defined? They're defined as being a place in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness is conformity to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action. 
The new heavens and a new earth will be a place in where everything conforms to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action. Everybody in this new world will be in perfect agreement with God's sovereign will. There will be no more sin. Sin won't even be a mind. It'll just be gone. There will be no more sin in this new heavens and new earth. But here's an interesting question. I want you to think this through. If there's going to be righteousness in heaven, many people want heaven, but they don't want to live righteously now. And this makes no sense to me. Why would you want to go to heaven where righteousness, where righteousness is and not live righteously now? That's a contradiction. I mean, if you want heaven because you want to, you want to be where a place is righteous, then you're going to live righteous right now. It's the idea. I've had many people say, well, we don't really like to sing. We don't really like to praise God. Then why do you want to go to heaven? It makes no sense. If you, don't want to, if you don't like to praise God, if you don't like to bring glory to God, why do you want to go to heaven? Because that's what you're going to do your whole time there. You're going to be worshiping your whole life. That makes absolutely no sense to me. But is that our mindset? Do we, do, we, do we really want heaven because righteousness dwells there and because we get to praise God? And if we do, I am convinced that we will be righteous here then because we want to do the same thing now that we're going to do forever. And many people don't want to do that. They, they, they just kind of use it as an escape, escape hatch, a fire insurance. They say, well, I just want to go to heaven because I don't want to suffer judgment. But they really have no joy in being with their Savior. Because if you have joy in being with your Savior forever, you will have joy with worshiping Him now. And do, is that your mindset? Peter wanted us to do that. That is having an eternal perspective. I encourage you guys to have that internal perspective. You know, John MacArthur mentioned that during this time period right now, he thinks the church is totally... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? It's totally indifferent to the return of Christ. He says he sees over and over and over again people who don't even care about the future. But my question for you all out there, ladies and gentlemen, is do you have that eternal perspective? Do you desire and hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you guys hunger for that time when you'll come back? Because if you do, things will change. For example, your time. How do you spend your time? Do you spend your time trying to invest in this world? Do you spend your time just trying to always entertain yourself? Do you, not, not that that's bad in and of itself, but where's your time? Where's your priorities? Are your priorities looking for eternity? Do you want to be eternally minded? When I, I work with the youth here, and, and one thing I'm always dealing with them is this. When I, I, I have them look at their schedules, and I, and I have them say, write down your schedule. And so they write it out, and what they always do is they write down everything else, school, homework, dinner, sleep, playtime. And then what they, they finally do is they stick in when they're going to spend time with the Lord. See, that's not having an eternal perspective. The way I see is having an eternal perspective is we the first thing we do when we look at our calendar is we, we say, okay, I'm going to spend time with the Lord right here, and I'm going to orchestrate my whole calendar and my whole day around doing things that have eternal value. You're going to start spending time doing things that matter eternally. That's having an eternal perspective. That's what Peter wants us to do, not, not be caught up in this world. Things are going to be destroyed. Another, another area is giving. Do we give for eternity? Or do we just use our money for our own pleasures? And that's a very interesting thing. It is such a great joy. It is fun. Paul calls it hilariously giving in 2 Corinthians 9. That we can give to the Lord. But do we want to give? Do we want to give to help, say, students or, or older people go on mission trips? Do we want to help somebody who's hurting and have them come over our house? Do we want to use our money to help other people out? Do we want to be ministers of the finances that the Lord has? Or do we want to hold on to them? And I believe if we have that eternal perspective, the way we use money will change. The way we spend our time will change. It's time for the church here in the 2001, not just our church, but all the churches, to rise up, to have an eternal perspective, 
to think and they yearn for heaven like all the disciples, like all the early church did. They loved the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back. They lived their whole life for that. Is that how we live our life? The day of the Lord is coming. Someday, everything will be destroyed. But the one thing that remains again is what we do for the Lord eternally. That's what remains. Are you ready for that return? 1 John 2.28 mentions, and this is what John states, he says, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Do you know why we can have confidence? It's because we're assured of our salvation and we're right with the Lord. If we're not assured of our salvation and we're not right with the Lord, we are not going to be, we're not going to be anxiously waiting for the Lord. We're going to be scared. Unbelievers are not going to be rejoicing in the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge. One very sobering verse is found in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. And Paul mentions this, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back and the beginning of the day of the Lord starts all the way through the end, what we saw, those who do not know God as Lord and Savior and those who do not obey the gospel of Him will be judged and they will never ever be in heaven. And the reason I point that out is if there are some of you who are unbelievers that I beg of you to repent, to turn to God, and for those of us who are believers, the time is now. The day of the Lord's coming like a thief. We have no idea when He's coming. The rapture could happen at any time. And you may never ever have another opportunity to tell your friends or to tell your family people who are unsaved that they need to turn to God. It's coming. It's coming quickly. And I encourage you all to have this mindset that Peter wants us to have, to be eternally ready, to be holy, godly, lookers for this coming and hastening that time. I beg of you to do that. Be ready. And again, my final question is, are you ready for that time? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have that you are coming back. Lord, thank you for salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for dying upon the cross for our sins. Lord, help me. Help these believers in here to be holy, godly, lookers for the new, the coming of you, that they will try to hasten it on. Lord, you are coming. Save those who are unsaved and cause us to be eternally minded people from this point on. We praise you forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.